0: Welcome to Sonics Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonics Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight podcast. This is episode number 26. Vacuum bending leading edge skins. This episode will look at an alternate way to bend the leading edge skins using an ordinary shop vac rather than a complicated process of building a bending brake. The vacuum bagging technique is a, is uh, it's great for scratch builders or, as we'll find out, for those kit builders that, for whatever reason, have to replace their leading edge skins and don't want to go through the cost and hassle of getting them shipped from the factory. So with that, I'm your host, Jeff Schultz. Builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me are my two good buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. Gary is builder of Hound Dog, V powered tail dragger. Gary flies from Denver, Colorado, is a longtime pilot, former CFI, and very soon a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how's the project coming?
1: Oh, it's doing well, doing well. I've just about got everything sealed up, just doing the last minute inspections and Getting ready to go do the you know the final condition inspection prior to my uh, DAR inspection this
0: coming Tuesday. So yeah, so you're in the single digit countdown now. Yep, yeah, counting by the by by the minute almost. So what are the major tasks? You don't have like uh, you know something that's gonna it's in the mail or something like that that's gonna threaten to derail you?
1: No, not that I know of. I did try to do uh, an E L T check with remote today, and it wasn't quite signaling between the unit. But I think I did a quick inspection of that and found the spot, so I just got to do a little pin rearranging on that, and that should take care of that. I hope.
0: And I saw your video of your taxi test. That looked pretty good. Yeah, it was nice. It was one of those things
1: it was at the end of the day, and I says, "Oh well, why not?" So I went ahead and drug it out, fired it up, and fortunately, it started right up again. And, good. You know, didn't have any oil leaks, and was able to drive it around a little bit. Actually, uh, the other day, it went down to the end of the runway to the compass rose. Uh, it did the compass calibration through the Adahars and menu system, and uh, that was just like spot on, instantaneous, with no hassles, and that was a pleasure. Good. So, so far, all the, the high, you know, the complicated EVA stuff, programming has been just falling in place mm-hmm. with compass and uh, autopilots and all the rest of the stuff that goes along
2: with it. And you're probably even able to talk to the tower. I, I can, actually, yes. Nice and clear, great communications. Are you using the Dynon radio,
1: I am. I have uh, two units in there, so I, uh, I can do a dual watch and have one pilot transmit while the co-pilot transmits on something else. It's
0: it's pretty entailed, pretty nice. Well, that's on my future upgrade list is to uh, replace my existing com with the Dynon com. Uh, just having it integrate seamlessly with the 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 SkyView is the way to go.
1: Yeah, I really like it, especially the way you can push uh, frequencies from the from the map on airports to the comms. And as you know, all the comms, they have push buttons on there for like tower, ground, ATIS, ATC. So they even further simplify the shoot.
0: All righty. Well, good deal, Gary. Um, so and uh, John Gillis. John flies his highly customized YX from his eastern Colorado airpark home. Living the dream out there, John. John is famous or maybe infamous. I don't know. What do you think? For his uh, custom modifications, including his single-stick conversion, his tilt-back canopy, his speed cowl, his toe brakes, and his breakaway tailwheel, and uh, his cool vinyl-wrapped finish. So, uh,
2: John, uh, what have you been up to recently? Oh, just living the dream. Flying a lot. Flew to work this morning, so can't be complaining about that.
0: Yeah, that's nice. Uh, I'd like to be able to do more of that. But I I haven't quite cracked the code for, for me flying to work yet. Soon.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a 10-minute flight or a 30-minute car drive, so I, I prefer the flight.
0: See, for me, I
2: have to drive to the
0: airport, I have to fly to
2: the other airport, then I have to catch a
0: ride over to my office. So it takes me about 45 minutes to fly, all said and done, and about 35 minutes to drive. So it's a lot more fun to fly. That
2: kind of gets into your um, your your coffee and biscuits time when you get to work, right? Yeah,
0: and I need that. <laughs> All right, uh, our guest today is Jonathan Wolf. Jonathan is a two-time aircraft builder working his way through a Sonics project. Uh, Jonathan, what, you're about a year and a half into it now? No, I was just
3: tallying that up earlier, and it's, uh, it's actually coming up on 26 months, so okay. a little bit longer than
0: I thought. Okay, so two years into it. That's still pretty good. Yeah. Making good progress. Uh, Jonathan is back again from being our very first guest in episode one. We'll be interested to hear kind of how things are coming along. But uh, before we get to that, you've had some pretty decent weather in Kansas City. Are uh, you getting any flying in?
3: Yeah, actually, uh, I've been flying my cold Firefly quite a bit lately. I went through a dry spell earlier in the summer, but I've managed to put in uh, eight and a half, nine hours in the last month, which is pretty good for me. That's well above average, so it's been a real good experience. Uh, uh, flying season late to summer.
0: Yeah, eight and a half or nine hours is good for Gary, even. <laughs> well,
1: per week, yes.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, hey guys, um, uh, not a lot on the news topic here, but uh, two things I want to cover. First up, uh, Reclaw. Reclaw is just about six or seven weeks out, and uh, I want to make a pitch for everybody to uh, to to plan it into their fall flying. So, a- as we talked about before. Reclaw is October 27th through the 29th. It's at a private airstrip in kind of southeastern uh, Texas, about a hundred miles southeast of Dallas, just roughly. It's kind of near the Texas-Louisiana border. It's at the Flying M Ranch, and uh, it, it, it's hard to describe the attraction of Reclaw. It um, it's a pilot's flying. You, you show up, you claim your spot along the taxiway, and you just watch people do flybys all day long, and it
2: is great. Kind of like the hillbilly of fly-ins. I kind of liken it to uh, a Sturgis of fly-ins. Yeah, that's not too far off either. So, yeah, it's it's outlaw-type uh, flying, but it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun.
3: I thought you were going to say there were topless women.
2: Well, I was thinking about <laughs> mentioning there wasn't any there, but.
0: <laughs> well, the thing I liked about last year was just the variety of airplanes. You know, there's a there's an old Ryan sitting there, and people are oohing and on over it. There's custom airplanes. There's a flight of RVs doing flybys and Texans, and and then there's a guy in a in a stall doing a short takeoff and landing while a Mustang does a, a low pass over his head. Just crazy chaos. Just really really fun to watch. Everybody just sort of works it out and gets along. And uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had no idea exactly how the flying was going to unfold, and I enjoyed it far more than I thought I was going to.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's a nice time. I think I'll be standing out on the runway this time with my thumb in the air trying to see if I could get your ride.
0: <laughs> well, the, um, for anybody who hasn't been to the website yet, we'll put a, a link in the uh, show notes for it. But the, the basic things are, are pretty easy. There's a minimal registration and camping fee. Um, volunteers have food trucks, and they have a barbecue going. They do a catered lunch and dinner. Uh, the prices are pretty reasonable. Uh, bring some cash for the meals, bring some snacks and drinks, and, and basically just sit in your camp
2: chair and enjoy the show. Yeah, definitely bring a camp chair because you're going to be sitting on the on the taxiway, you know, stepping over planes and people and kids and dogs. And it's a lot of fun, though. So we got, um,
0: just doing the quick mental check, um, Robert Barber and Mike Singleton are coming. Is Carl coming down in the uh, rumble bus?
2: He's either gonna do his sonics or the rumble bus. We don't he hasn't decided yet. Okay. Gary needs to just sit in the back of the rumble bus and ride with him. Yeah.
0: And then uh I got a I got a text from Mike. He's looking for a new tent, so I guess that means he's coming. Yep, Mike is
2: uh he's on board, I'm on board. So the Colorado contingent will be there. Good.
0: Yep. We'll have a good strong showing. This time though we gotta get everybody back in the air. We'll have to like stake out our camp spot so nobody like takes it while we're gone. And then we'll do some uh, some Sonics uh, intensive flybys.
2: Well, Carl's going to uh, formation flying school, so he can teach us a few things. You know, he can keep try to tight. he can try to
0: teach us a few things, but I'm not so sure I'm going to learn anything from Carl.
2: <laughs> yeah, he'll have to be in the back, getting close to us, and we'll just have to keep <laughs> flying flat and straight.
0: You know, those round Indian guys are a different breed. Uh,
2: I don't know that I can uh,
0: I can do that. All right, well, I, I hope that um, we have a really good turnout. Uh, my advice is if you can get there on Friday, get there and get a good spot. If you have to come in on Saturday, get there as early as you possibly can. And if possible, call ahead and have somebody stake you out a spot because by Saturday afternoon, this is going to be slim pickings for campsites. All right, so the, the next thing I want to hit real quick is um, we've got a couple requests for a discussion about how we lean our airplanes um, with the Aero Carb or the Aero Injector, so I thought we would just go over this for a couple of minutes. We'll just kind of keep it short. John, why don't you start us off? What is your process for leaning?
2: Well, I've set my needle up so that I cannot fly at full rich. It's just too rich. But what I find is I, I fly, you know, from relatively high airport at seven thousand feet, and then when I get down low. In Texas, I'm way too lean, so I I have set up my needle to be real rich, and so my startup is I've got my mixture out a half an inch or an inch, and then I lean from there to get my RPM to get to max RPM for takeoff. Then uh, on uh, you know once I get up and in, in cruising, I just watch my EGTs and uh, just constantly adjusting that mixture until I get to cruise speed and my cruise RPM, and then just fine-tune it from there to get to just rich of peak is where I set it. I find that if I go lean of peak, um, I start can, I can feel some knocking and things, and I just don't like it like that, so I just go rich of peak.
0: Okay, and what kind of EGT settings are you seeing when you're when you're climbing and then cruising?
2: Well, when I climb, I have the Jabiru, and I think it's a common problem with the Aerocarbon and the Jabiru that the back two, five, and six cylinders go lean during a climb out where the front ones are, are rich. But then once I get into a, a level flight and cruise, they all even out. So I try to go a little rich on the climb out, um, just watching my, my rear EGTs to be right around 13, 1350. And then, um, you know, once I push over and, and get into cruise, those will drop, everything will drop down to about 1200, and then I'll lean it out to another 13, 1350 is about what I am comfortable with my alarms are set at 1400. So if it, if anything starts getting a little hot, then, um, you know, I start seeing uh, yellow and red alerts on my EFIS.
0: Okay. And then when you're on initial climb out, like right after you leave the ground, what do you like to see your EGTS at or, or what's your maximum that you're comfortable with?
2: The max I'm comfortable was about 1400. On initial climb out. Uh, and that, and that usually is spiking on number six and number five. OK, because the reason I the reason I
0: ask that is Jabiru publishes very, very low EGT limits for that full throttle kind of climb out area. And, and I mm-hmm. I go hotter than that just because if I go rich enough to keep the engine below that temperature, it just stumbles and slobbers and it's
2: obviously not happy. Yeah, the the engine just seems to be happier when you lean it enough. If I go too rich, you're right, it, it, it dogs down. I lose, you know, almost 200 rpm. But our density altitude, that's not enough. I need I need the extra power, so I'll, I'll lean it out.
0: Yeah. jabberu says like like 1294 or something something like that. It's below 1300. And I find that, yeah. you know, I, I really want to be at right around 1300, maybe a little bit, you know, 1320, 1340. Um, th- that's really where my engine seems to be the happiest. So if I'm in that range, I'm good. Um, and if it's below 1300, I'm starting to kind of sense a little
2: bit of sluggishness. I'm also watching my fuel flow and if it, you know, it gets, um, you know, on takeoff and, and climb out at full throttle, you know, I'm seeing between, uh, seven and, and eight and a half gallons per hour. Um, I know I'm, I'm right in the, a ballpark there. And then once I get into to cruise, I can get it down to six, five and a half. If I pull back the throttle a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, very similar to everything I'm seeing with my Sensinic prop and the Jabiru. Uh, I take off, I'm seeing 2,900, maybe I might see 3,000. Usually it's around 2,900, 2,950. And I try to keep my EGTs around that 1,300, 1,340 maybe. And so a lot of times, if I just pull back the throttle, just just a hair, just a 16th of an inch, that'll start to drop those EGTs a little. So that that's for me, that's fairly common. I probably um, need to go in there and make an adjustment. I've been thinking about maybe putting in the number four needle and and just playing with that. But it's running so good that I haven't wanted to mess with it. And then I just, I leave it at where it's set until I'm done with my initial climb out. Once the engine is kind of stabilized a little bit in cruise, RPMs start to come up as, as you level off. And so I pull the throttle back to set into my cruise RPM of, 27, 28, 2900, somewhere in that range. 2850 is a real common kind of cruise target. And then uh, I'll definitely see the EGTs fall, and I'll start leaning at that point to bring them back up to 1350, 1380. uh, And that's what I do. And in cruise, it would not be uncommon for me to have the mixture pulled back three quarters of an inch, maybe an inch. And especially when you get below 2700, you you know, on my needle setting, you really got to start leaning it pretty uh, regularly.
2: I was having a problem with getting really way too lean in really hot days up here at our density altitude, and so I really richened everything up. So I'm pulled back a good two inches on my mixture setting, uh, just to so I'm I'm, you know at the other end of the scale on the mixture setting to to make sure it's wet enough when it's really hot, and I need that extra fuel, or I'm at low density, low altitude, and then it's um, I'm able to to lean it out nicely and get it in the air. I also put a veneer uh, or vernier, So that how you say it, uh, mixture so I can really fine tune it with just a twist or two of the mixture instead of having the, the typical Sonics plunger type.
0: Right, and I have that, that button lock mixture knob that Sonics recommends and you're right, it's very hard to make fine adjustments. About as fine as I can do without using two hands is maybe a an eighth of an inch movement. You just you tend to overshoot a lot. So being able to do a real fine twist on it to 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 tune it, that's a big advantage. Anybody who's thinking about installing their controls, don't go with a button lock. Go with a, a, a very fine adjustment. There's one by McFarlane that is great. It's a combination Vernier friction style. So just go check that out. McFarlane has a, a whole line of stuff. That's the one to use. Or... If you want to go with a straight vernier, go with that as well.
2: Yeah, I did the aircraft spruce. But I guess you can push the button and, you know, pull it just like yours to do a quick adjustment. <clears throat> find myself almost by habit now on takeoff. You know, I'll take in, if I, if I know I need a little leaner, I'll just take and turn it a half a turn, you know, with a quick flick of the wrist. And then, you know, pay attention to other things and see how that settles out in, you know, 30 seconds and then do another adjustment.
0: Gary, uh, on the V. Tell us how you lean on the
1: Aero-V. Um In general, too, I found it up here I needed to set my mixture uh, needle settings so it would, I could get a little bit on the, the wet or really rich side if I needed to. So typically when I start up, even though I would, I would start in a little bit of a lean condition, maybe a, a quarter inch or so on the mixture just to start. And then once the engine is starting, I do aggressively lean on the ground. I, I've just always been in the habit that way to maintain clean plugs and so forth. And uh, you know there's no there's no harm to doing it if you if you over over lean on the ground the thing just simply quits it doesn't damage the engine and of course if you forget to uh, to to richen it up as you start applying throttle it, it will notify you pretty quickly as well so there's really no downside to to aggressive ground leading at all
0: yeah Gary that, that's a that's a really good point because if you kind of do it just somewhere in the middle, you think, well, a little bit of leaning is probably being kind of nice to the engine. There'll come a day where you forget to go to full rich or whatever full rich for takeoff is, and you take off for and sure. you see your temp spike. Better to be on the verge of dying because you're so lean. The minute that throttle comes up past half, it'll just start to choke down and die, and you will not make a takeoff in an overly lean condition. No,
1: you get your attention pretty quickly and you figure out what the problem is. Uh, so, in that case, then, you know, as I'm, as I'm starting to climb out, I, I, too, use the veneer throttle uh, mixture control, and that was something I did a couple years after I had the aircraft, but I, I certainly wish I would have done it on the initial build, and I've always recommended the same thing to everyone as well. Uh, the ROV carbs require continuous manipulation of the mixture control to get optimal settings, and even when I have my hand on the throttle, I can just kind of thumb that mixture control as I need to back and forth and really fine-tune it all the time. So that worked out really, really well. My typical fuel flows in the Air V. Um, I would always be able to set my mixture so that I could run uh, rich of, of peak or lean of peak. A lot of people don't seem to set them where they get, to, they get to the lean of peak, but I did. Most of the time, I would cruise up around here, and my altitude would just say 8,000 feet. My typical fuel burn would be 3.5 gallons per hour at 130 miles per hour. Uh, and that was pretty typical. That would get me the EGTs probably in uh, sometimes high 1,200s, but most of the time low 1,300s. If I needed peak power, I was running closer to 4.4 gallons per hour. Um, and if I was really dogging and flogging it, I could get the 150, but probably closer to 4.8 gallons per hour on my fuel flows. But most of the time, I would say I was pretty close to the just a just to the high side of of 1,300 for my EGTs
0: to keep the engine happy.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, good. I think the important part is um, don't be afraid to set your full throttle mixture uh, rich enough to get the job done. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with making that initial climb out and pulling the mixture back a little bit to smooth the engine out. You'll know if you go over that because the engine will start to really misbehave. Your temperatures will start to come up. You're not going to blow the engine up in, in two or three seconds. You'll know that you've overshot your leaning on climb out and don't do that again. But I think a lot of people are afraid to even try that and they really don't know that full throttle climb out. They don't know whether they're too rich or too lean or maybe right in the sweet spot. I think that's the easiest way. Sneak up.
1: Yeah, I've always recommended people, if they're having trouble with high EGTs and CHTs, I, I suspect their needle settings are way too lean to begin with, and they probably need to really start going richer than whatever they think they need to use.
0: You know, it, it takes fuel to, uh, to make power. And so, in general, a rule of thumb, about 13 horsepower per gallon per hour is just a rule of thumb for that. So, if you're going to need to make power, you're going to have to burn the gas to get it. So, you can do the you can do the calculation for how much power you're trying to demand from the engine and see if your fuel flow is is really supporting that. So in the case of Gary, you know, at an 8,000-foot density altitude day with his 80-horse AeroV, you can calculate based on density altitude what your percent power is and then apply that rule of thumb. And that ought to tell you what your full-throttle fuel flow ought to be and at least give you a sanity check if you're in the ballpark.
1: Yeah, initially in doing my climbs, I I would – I would more quickly scan my fuel flow because I knew what it needed to be, and that would give me a better guide on how I needed to quickly set my mixture. And then once in, when you're establishing cruise or got more time to play around with it, then you can fine-tune it with the veneer throttle. But I got to where I really, really concentrated on fuel flows for either uh, basic uh, cruise setting or max power
0: setting. Right. Yep. Okay. Anything else that you think is um, important to, to caveat before we close out the leaning discussion?
1: Don't be afraid to lean. I, I mean, I think you really should be able to uh, see EGTs uh, that go from, you know, the, the 1,400, uh, you know, down and then back up again. You'd be able to need to see that crest so that you can know which side of a peak you are, whether you're lean or rich. If you can't get to the lean side of, of your peak EGT, your settings just are not correct.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Let's move into the uh, the main topic. So again, uh, our guest is Jonathan Wolfe. Jonathan is a mechanical engineer working as the director of engineering at a major tube mill serving the steel industry, again, in Kansas City. He's been a private pilot since 96. He previously built and flies his Kolb Firefly, and he's currently two years into his Sonic 1697 build. I think he kind of gave us all the vital stats, but essentially tail dragger, dual stick, jabberoo-powered, All right, so how's the project coming?
3: Uh, It's going well. Uh, Fuselage is on the gear. Engine is installed. Uh, About the only major item I lack doing on the fuselage is the canopy, which I'm going to save till dead last so I don't have, you know, hanger rash potential with that. I want to keep it under wraps as long as I can. Uh, The spars are both built, and I'm in the process of – skinning the right-hand wing. So I, I think it's going, it's going slower than I originally imagined, but I'm still really happy with my progress to be just past the two-year mark. I think I'll probably have it wrapped up hopefully in another year thereabouts. So, yeah, moving along. Enjoying it.
0: Yeah, but slow is a relative term. You know, it needs to work at a pace that works for you. Two years in, I think you're you're pretty much on track with with most people's building experience. I wouldn't characterize that as slow. Maybe slower than you wanted, but not slow.
3: Well, it, everything in life seems to be that way, doesn't it? You know,
1: <laughs> I took about three to three and a half years on my build, and that was before the match holds.
3: Yeah, so you you did well then, because you had a lot more, lot more work to do.
2: Yeah, we had a lot of parts to make. Yeah. You're doing all flush
0: rivets. And so last time I think you talked about flush riveting the tail surface and, and the fuselage, but, but now that you're into the wing, how is that process going on flush riveting the entire wing?
3: You know, I have not, uh, started the dimpling process yet. Um, so my opinion of that, I'm sure will change in the next (laughs) few weeks, but yeah, obviously the wing is, uh, that's where the majority of the holes and the work for that are Uh, flush riveting is I don't know if I had it to do over again I probably would not go that route and it's taken me this long to kind of decide that Uh, I was real happy with it up until recently but as I look forward to all of that work to be done on the wings I'm kind of thinking maybe standard rivets would have been just fine I don't know we'll, we'll see after i get it all done I, I might change my mind again once i see the results but it definitely is a lot of work because i'm actually using the simple dimple die and the nail routine to do all the dimpling and that's very labor intensive so i try to set it up where i do a lot of drilling on the weekends and then Work like an hour, hour and a half a night after work during the week to do the dimpling so that I don't have to sit and do that in uh, too long of a session. And that oh. that's helped quite a
1: bit. You right? went through a lot of nails, did you?
3: You know, originally I did, but then I kind of learned that I was really over-tensioning it. And once you kind of learn where to stop, I can make a nail last probably... 50 or 60 dimples which isn't too bad there originally I was breaking them like every 12 or 15 it's just unnecessary amount of force or maybe it was the your, Chinese nails I don't know
2: your forearms must look like Popeyes if you use yeah, that simple dimple die
3: yeah my, my right hand <laughs> look like a lobster <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So don't get in an arm wrestle contest with them. You'll that's lose.
3: That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, you
0: know, dimpling the skins and the ribs, you know, that that's no different than the leading edges. We all have to go through that. You just do more of it. But what about right. the hinge lines and the spar caps? Those are the two areas that are kind of unique. How do you handle those?
3: You know, the hinge lines, uh, the simple dimple die works just fine for those. A uh, couple layers of 025 dimple fine, and uh, the hinge material dimples fine. It will distort the hinge just a little bit. It'll put just ever so slight of a curl into it, but it's nothing that doesn't straighten out when you rivet it onto the skin. So I I haven't had any problems with that. Uh, I have not countersunk the spar caps yet. They are drilled to, uh, to a number 30 at this point, and I've just yet to come along and uh do the the counter syncing but you have to be you know obviously really careful about setting your counter up and getting all of that just right when you've got a couple layers on top of a critical thing like the spar you know you want a good good lab joint there so i'll probably spend it seems like it takes me 20 minutes to set up the uh, counter sync every time i i do it but once you get it set up you can zip down the spar, I think, pretty, pretty quickly, you know, 30 minutes, you're, you're done.
0: There's no problem getting, um, the, the forward skin and the aft skin, those dimples to line up properly?
3: No, not, not the way I've, I've approached it. Uh, since I made my own skins, my own leading edge skins, I, when I made those, I did not put pilot holes in them where they overlap, uh, the aft skin and they overlap the spar. And I actually slipped the forward wing skin underneath the aft skin and used the pilot holes that were in the aft skin to drill through the leading edge skin and the spar. Right. So I was able to kind of position the leading edge skin where I wanted it and just drill that way. So I, I didn't have to force anything to a, into a alignment, mm-hmm. which worked out really nice.
0: Yeah. Okay. That
3: was the upside to my whole fiasco. <laughs>
0: So, for for anybody who wasn't keeping track, Jonathan is a kit builder who fabricated his leading edge skins. So, tell us, why did you fabricate <laughs> your leading edge skins?
3: <laughs> yeah, so basically I'm on this podcast because I'm an idiot. I, I let something really bad happen and I'll...
0: I don't, mind telling,
3: <laughs> I don't mind telling the story because it's kind of a... I look at it as a cautionary tale for people that might be in the same situation. They're going to want to run down to the basement and tape up their leading edge wingskin box with a lot more tape (laughs) after they hear this story. But
0: okay. So tell us.
3: Yeah. So when I got my kit, like most people, I opened up the boxes and did my inventory, including opening the box for the leading edge skins. And, you know, if you're a builder, you know, you know, this, uh, Otherwise, I'll explain it. So the leading edge skins are, they're preformed, but they're not preformed really well. Like if you lay them out on the floor, they flop open to this obtuse angle of, let's say, 135 degrees. Okay. And they're stored in a box that's probably, I don't know, eight or nine inches tall. So you have to fold the skins over and compress them to get them back into the box and there's two skins in the box nested together, so you got two skins worth of force you're trying to work against there. It almost takes two people to get them back in the box once you've uh, opened it up. So I had done that, and I had taped the box back together with really good, like, gorilla tape, and I used probably 10 or 12 strips of it, a couple feet long each. Uh, I thought I'd done a wonderful job of securing the skins back in the box. Slid the box up against the wall, and there it sat month after month collecting dust, not thinking too much about it. Uh, Over time, the shop's kind of small. I needed some storage space, so I began to set various items on top of the box, parts of the plane, hand tools, that sort of thing. Well, one night at about 2.30 in the morning, I hear this loud crash in the basement. It wakes me up, wakes up my wife. I go down there, and I find that that box had sprung open. All of the tape had popped loose. The box had sprung open, and all of the items that I had on top of the box fell
0: into the box on the skins, so like shot into the air and then fell back into the box and the now open box on your skins.
3: Yeah. So you've, you've seen the magic trick where you, you know, the old trick where you yank the tablecloth out from under the place setting, you know, in <laughs> the the place setting stays in place. Or maybe you've seen a Roadrunner cartoon where Wile E. Coyote runs off the cliff and his legs are still kind of spinning before he falls. <laughs> It's that kind of a thing that i imagine happened like for a brief moment those parts were suspended in the air <laughs> before they fell and ruined my wing skins put uh several dings in them and the the skins were nested next to one another so it got both of them at the same time so it made me sick i didn't sleep real well the rest of the night so I tried to kind of roll the skins and work them and, and see if I could get some of the damage out. But as you know, once the aluminum stretches, there's there's no way to come back from that. So it left me with a couple of choices. One, uh, call Sonics and get some skins from them. But, you know, there's the obvious cost issue, the freight issue, who knows what the lead time would have been it it might have been immediate or it might have been months who knows i didn't call them to to find out uh i decided to go the route of building my own using the vacuum bag technique and there were a couple of reasons for that besides cost Um, one is the issue with the way that the factory skins are are formed if you're a builder you've run into this uh it's like the leading edge radius is just a little bit too large so the factory skins don't necessarily want to lay down on the ribs real well the the rivet kind of has to pull the skin down onto the rib and you end up with some little craters or puckers around um the rivet head with the factory skins and so I had wanted to try to overcome that issue and address it anyway, so I got my chance <laughs> by uh, having to build them from from scratch.
0: When you talk about the um, the skin doesn't fit the, the ribs real well, um, there's a fair amount of tension. You know, when you when you wrap that that leading edge skin on, it's easy to cleco say the bottom side. You can cleco it all the way to the last hole in in the bottom of that that leading edge rim. And then you roll that skin over the top, and you can start clicoing it at the at the spark cap, and kind of working your way forward. But as you get closer and closer to the to the nose of that skin, it starts to get really hard for those clecos to pull the skin down tight on the rib. And that's where that that radius, that bend radius, uh, becomes obvious. Um, the rivets are doing a lot of work to hold that skin up against the rib. So what you're saying is you could reform that using a vacuum bagging technique and make it a little tighter to begin with.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But that was the goal. So I started by watching, uh, YouTube videos. There's, there's only really a couple out there that are any good, uh, on this and I'll make sure I send you those links so that you can put them in the the show notes. But, uh, I'll go ahead and kind of quickly describe the technique for the people that don't take the time to watch the video. But, Basically, what you do is you you cut your uh, sheet out in the shape that it needs to be. You have your work table, and you lay down a large sheet of plastic. You lay your uh, leading-edge skin on that, and then you lay a piece of uh, metal tubing. I think uh, the typical YouTube-recommended Uh, Tube size is an inch and a half Schedule 40. You can buy this at Lowe's or Home Depot. The inch and a half Schedule 40 pipe actually measures something like 1.9 inches in diameter. So you lay that down on the bend line and you use some strap clamps to clamp the tube down to, um, to your work surface and basically pinch the skin between the work surface and the tube. And then what you do is you start to fold the leading edge skin up until uh, each of the edges meet one another. So, the uh, leading edge and trailing edge of what would be the formed skin, you want to bring those edges up together. And the way you do that is by using masking tape. You start to fold the the sheet up a little bit, and you hold the edges with probably – across the 10 foot length of the sheet maybe 40 pieces of masking tape and you go down through there and you retention the tape through a series of probably 20 passes bringing the edges closer and closer and closer together until they
2: touch. so you form are you doing this alone yeah you're are you, doing are you doing this alone or do you have a, a couple of hands extra? Uh, by myself you can do it by yourself.
0: So just for anybody that's having a hard time visualizing, this is like making a taco. You lay your tortilla flat, yep. and then you start folding the ends up so that they ultimately are gonna kind of touch.
3: Yeah, and you're using the tape to just bring the edges maybe an inch closer each time you work from one end of the sheet to the other just by retensioning the tape. Otherwise, you just couldn't do it. I don't I don't know if six people would be enough hands to Fold that sheet up because there's quite a bit of tension uh, on it when you're all said and done. But blue painter's tape will will do it.
2: And doing it alone, you probably have a lot more control over your process.
3: Yes, you go real slow, and it only really takes about 20 minutes to get the edges to touch. So it's, it's not that bad. It's just kind of a repetitive, boring
0: task. So, when you're doing this, is the metal permanently bending, or is it just, is it just kind of sprung and but being it's held close? It's
3: sprung, and it's under a lot of tension. And if you untaped it, it would not fall back flat. It would have some
0: permanent okay. so a very very slight bend at this point.
3: V- very slight, yeah. Okay. It's basically making a almost a circle, more yeah. like a teardrop shape. I guess is okay. Is, is. So after you get it to that point, you then take the uh, plastic sheeting that you lay down initially and you start to fold it over and kind of gift wrap it in such a manner that you're able to tape all the edges up and form a airtight bag. And you want to leave the bag real loose. And this is not something that's talked about in the videos, and I discovered this the hard way. When you put the skin under tension, the height of it, it, it's going to get taller because you're bringing the sides together. At some point, the skin halves are going to touch from the edge all the way down to to the tube, and the whole thing's going to stand up and get tall. And you got to have enough slack in the bag to allow it to do that, or else it'll... The skin will poke itself out of the bag, and it'll tear, and you'll lose your vacuum. So be very liberal with the uh, the size of the bag. So you tape up all the edges, and before you finally seal it, you just take a ordinary shop vac and stick it inside the bag, and put a little extra tape where you know where you're shoving it in. It, it, nothing has to be like super airtight. It's not really that critical, and turn on the vacuum and in a period of maybe eight or nine seconds the air comes out and uh it starts to wrap tightly around the pipe and in my case i let my shop vac go until it didn't suck anymore i waited till it you know had all the air out of the bag that it could get out of it turned it off opened the bag And I had a perfectly formed skin that, when it relaxed, was uh, only open, let's say, like a 45-degree angle, as opposed to the factory skins. When they're relaxed, they're open at more like a 135-degree angle. So you get a much more uh, tight bend angle that's going to more closely match the rib profile. By doing this. And I want to back up a little bit and talk about the size of the pipe that I used. And this is kind of the nugget of wisdom that I got out of this process and I really want to share with, with everybody. The videos talk about or seem to show an inch and a half Schedule 40 pipe. There's at least one website that calls out an inch and a half Schedule 40 pipe. And I agree that If you use that pipe size, you will faithfully recreate the factory leading edge radius. That is the right size pipe if if you want to duplicate the radius that Sonics has. But if you want to tighten that radius up and you want to make it fit the ribs better, you need to drop down to the next size, which is an inch and a quarter schedule 40 pipe, which has a diameter of 1.66. So it's 1.66 as opposed to 1.9. And that little bit of decrease in diameter is what will tighten up that leading edge radius. And before you do this, what you can do, if you don't believe it and you wanna validate it, just cut some strips of aluminum, walk into Home Depot, go to the plumbing aisle, and start wrapping those strips of aluminum around the different tube sizes and take a copy of your plans in if you want and lay the result against the plans and you'll see that that inch and a quarter pipe size is the one that's going to give you the best match to the plans. So this was my first skin uh, that I just described and it actually did not turn out. Well, and this is the second nugget of wisdom (laughs) I'll provide here. By using the smaller tube and having a a tighter leading edge radius, it takes more material. So when I took the skin off the work table and tried to fit it to the wing, while it matched the rib contour very well and laid down against the ribs, I, I could hold it against the ribs with blue painter's tape. So, spring back was not an issue at all. I was not able to draw the skin aft far enough to to get the required edge distance on the spar rivet line. So, more material was consumed by the smaller radius. So, I took the – just to validate that, I took the skin that I just made, laid it on the floor, uh, like a TP and sh- basically pressed on it with a board, opening up the radius, sure enough, brought it back over to the wing. I had more uh, I had more um, material to to um, make it to the spar, but then I was back to having the problem with the leading edge radius being too large. So second time around when I cut my skin blank, I made it a quarter inch wider on either side or a half inch wider in total, repeated the same process again. Then when I fit it to the wing, it was absolutely perfect. It slid right on, contoured to the ribs well, Uh, no problem with Clico's uh, holding the skin down or any puckers around the Clico's. And I had the required material to make it back to the spar that I needed. So if you're you're gonna do this technique and you're gonna use uh, an inch and a quarter pipe for the leading edge, you need to start with skins that are a little bit wider than the factory.
0: So so how much wider again?
3: A half inch in total. Quarter inch top, quarter inch bottom for a half inch in total.
0: Okay, so just to summarize, the smaller diameter gives you a tighter nose radius, which takes a little bit more material because it right. breaks out a little further. And so a half-inch total additional length added to your, your wingskin blank. Yep. Or use the inch-and-a-half pipe, and it matches basically what you get from the factory and the, that radius.
2: Right. Right. So do you think you have a little pointier nose on your on your wing than all of us that just use the factory skins? So you would
3: think so. But I photocopied my plans and cut it out uh, the the uh, leading edge profile and put it up next to, uh, you know, to the wing with the skin click in place. And it's a dead match. It's not off more than a 32nd in any place around the radius.
0: Yeah, John, to answer your question, if you look at our wings, the, the blunter factory profile, it's not exactly true to the to the airfoil that is in the plans. It's a little there's a little bit of a bulge in the front. So yep. Jonathan probably has an exact match to the airfoil in the plans. We have a close match, but not an exact match. Yeah. But that's what every <laughs> other Sonics is flying. So Jonathan's right, right. and I have those little John's. dimples.
3: Yeah, as a result, I'm gonna fly uh Ten miles an hour faster than all you guys. That's what I get out of this, right? No, it
2: means you're gonna be real close to where I am. Yeah. <laughs> because I have the speed count. Well, John, we have to pull all these
0: little tricks to keep up with you, so
2: Yeah, yeah. well, okay. Well now I, I'm gonna I'm now I'm convinced I'm just gonna go drill out all my rivets and and do this new skin because I I c I can't be slow.
1: <laughs> yeah, but he's still
2: gonna beat you because he has a completely countersunk airframe. Yeah, that's that. Half I could do that too. I diff- could really do that. You know, you can't. You can go back and, and, and countersink everything, can't you? After you build,
0: you can. You just you need a punch that fits the size of the head, and you just whack <laughs> each rivet. <ribbit.
2: laughs> it's not an approved
0: technique, though.
3: Okay. So, well, one other thing, <laughs> on a serious note, one other tip I'll throw out there: uh, cutting the new skins. Out of a sheet of aluminum was a little bit intimidating to start with, but I used one of these. I guess you call it like a scoring knife. Um, it's uh, it's got a blade that has kind of a hook profile in it, and you draw it along the aluminum, and it pulls like a little sliver. You have to make ten or twelve passes to get through it. That's Is that what that's I use. Olfa knife. Yeah, it's yeah. an Olfa knife. Uh, yeah. On, worked really well i don't know how many people use those for longer cuts but it's definitely the way to to make a cut like that and not end up with uh you know a bad edge from shears and that sort of thing
2: the material yeah i would think just gnawing thin. at it with with a you know a regular a cutter would would give you a really ugly edge.
3: Yeah. yeah so the olfa knife is the trick there I, I was able to make the uh, the skin blank using the factory skin as a template in less than two hours and that includes transferring all the holes so that wasn't bad at all
0: so speaking of holes um are you pre-drilling the the rivet lines before you bend or are you going to do that afterwards
3: yeah i pre-drilled all the rivet lines that i could if, except you know for the ones that go in the spar
0: right yeah because you're going to match those to the yeah
3: going to match those to the aft
0: Yeah. Okay. And that didn't mess up anything at all then, huh? Nope. Nope. All right. Um, what about the danger of, of handling this big floppy skin? Um, did, did you feel like you were going to kink it while trying to get it to close it up with the tape or, or on the bending or anything like that?
3: No, no, not at all. Um, it was really a, uh, painless process. Just watch the YouTube video Uh, The video is worth a thousand words. It's it's pretty difficult to explain, but when you see the video, you'll get it instantly. The taping technique and the bagging technique. Uh, Probably one word of caution might be uh, not to put too much vacuum on it because if you had a really powerful vac, I could foresee that the skin might wrap around the pipe in such a way that it actually, it, it's contacting too much of the pipe and you actually start to end up with a reverse bend
0: in it. All oh, right, right. Yeah.
3: Right? So you, you want the, this is kind of a, this is my best recollection of, of how much vacuum I put on it, but the skin stopped, contacting the tube at probably the 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock positions as the skin went up vertically. If you draw such a vacuum that you're contacting the tube at like 11 and 1 o'clock with just a tiny little spot to stick your finger between the skin halves and the tube at the top, you have probably overdrawn it, and you might not be happy with the results. So you can definitely take a stab at it, uh, turn off the vacuum, see what you got. If you want to bend it a little more, draw it back. There's nothing about it that's like a one-shot deal. You could make multiple attempts at uh, pulling the vacuum on it until you get it
0: where you want it. So again, no need to have a super industrial shop vac or anything like that?
3: No, no. And if you wanted to, it's probably one more cautionary thing I'll say. When I turned the shop vac off, it didn't seem to stop drawing a vacuum immediately. Like it kind of coasted ahead of me just a little bit. So if I was going to do this a lot and I wanted to really regulate how well it worked, I would take another tube, say like a half inch or three quarter inch water pipe or something and stick in the bag, start the shop vac and then put my thumb over this second tube and remove my thumb or partially cover the hole in this other tube as a as a regulator to how much vacuum I'm drawing. So it would give me very precise control. I could place my thumb on it or let up uh, to control the rate of vacuum.
0: Oh, so you're talking about like a, like a way to, to, to leak air back into the yeah, bag to wave, slow down the, the a rate. controlled leak. Yeah. yeah, OK. All right, so um, in terms of total cost and total time uh, of doing it this way, tell us what you you kind of concluded.
3: Well, I lucked out on the cost side because I live in Kansas City and Air Parts is here. So, you know, I'm I'm able to place an order for aluminum in the morning and stop by after work and pick up aluminum. And I, I think the skins cost me $115 each. And I had a couple of feet extra added to the length just because I wanted some extra aluminum around the shop. So... I had access to materials, you know, for a couple hundred dollars, you know, four dollars worth of plastic and a roll of blue painters tape, and I think a sixteen or eighteen dollar Olfin knife. So what's that? Less than
0: two fifty. And I looked up the the cost of a factory skin. They're two hundred and twenty five dollars each plus shipping, and I I don't know what the shipping would be, but $50, 60 bucks probably
3: yeah you know it's oversized uh, so it might even be a hundred bucks who knows so mm.
0: so you' you're doing it for half price
3: yeah you're you're doing it for half and in my opinion uh, you end up with a better result um i'm just more than pleased with how well it fits the ribs like i said i was able to hold the skins down with painter's tape as opposed to ratchet straps and boards and a lot of these other things that people have to do to get the skins drawn back far enough it's pretty
0: straightforward go for it
3: it's not something to uh to be intimidated by really
0: okay well good um I- i'm looking forward to seeing pictures of how that turned out
1: all right i'm looking forward to seeing you flying faster than john gillis <laughs>
2: Well, it's unlikely, but, uh, you know, we'll see.
0: Well, I happen to know that John's got a few other tricks up his sleeve. He doesn't like to roll them out all at once. So they say that necessity is the mother of invention. So when somebody gets close, John figures out a way to go a little faster. So, Jonathan, uh, tell us about some of the other things you're working on.
3: I'm trying to figure out how to get some more fuel in the plane. And the approach... I'm taking for auxiliary tanks is to try to build tubular fiberglass wing tanks, kind of like the Jim Hickey tanks, except out of fiberglass. A couple of reasons for that. One, you know, you, you can't get the tanks that Jim has. They're no longer made. Um, they were pretty expensive. I think when they were being made, uh, I think I saw on the forums something like 1500 bucks a pair. Um, if you wanted to try to have them made, like if I wanted to do them locally, the tube that they're made out of, you know, four inch diameter, uh, aluminum tube is not real common. Can't really source it locally. So who knows what it would cost just to get the materials. And the weight is pretty high on that. Um, I'm not sure exactly what those, uh, what the tank thickness is, but Typically, you wouldn't weld on anything that's less than about 040 is what I gather. And if those tanks are, in fact, uh, four inch by 040, they're going to weigh about five and a half pounds a piece, just the tube. That's not including weld and end caps and fittings and uh, tank neck and all that. So it's kind of a high weight penalty to go that route. So that's why I'm considering... Fiberglass. Uh, I ended up at fiberglass after a failed attempt to roll some O25 aluminum and do a riveted tubular tank. Um, I had this crazy scheme where I was going to uh, use the jigsaw to cut uh, some uh, slots in different wood templates and then draw the sheet through the different shapes and progressively like form it up from uh, a flat strip up to the shape of a tube by drawing it through dyes. Uh, that was a miserable failure. And so I've moved on to fiberglass as the approach now. And the way I'm going about that is I used a, a three inch schedule 40 PVC pipe as, uh, as a plug for a fiberglass mold. I built a box and put together some rigging to suspend this PVC pipe where it's halfway down into the box. So this box is like 10 and a half feet long, eight inches wide and about four inches deep. And I suspended this uh, PVC pipe halfway down into the box and then filled it with plaster of Paris up to the top of the box and then I've popped out the PVC pipe and what that left me with is a half cylinder that's three and a half inches in diameter and then I'll do uh, a hand layup inside that uh, mold and then seam those together with tape fiberglass tape I'll see how that goes it it may not be something that I'm happy with uh, that I feel you know good about structurally uh, in the end, but I'm determined to do something to have a, uh, a permanently installed, uh, auxiliary fuel tank that, uh, is not a a CG penalty. I, I really want something, uh, that's forward CG and not aft, like some of the behind the seat or baggage compartment, uh, solutions. So, it might be a fool's errand, but, uh, I'm, I'm giving it a shot. I've been working on it about three weeks. The mold uh, looks really nice. Uh, spent the last couple of nights shellacking it, uh, sealing the plaster of Paris, and creating good surface that I can wax and, uh, you know, keep the, the fiberglass from, from sticking. And I anticipate the usable capacity to be about four gallons per side for a total of eight. and if I'm successful, the weight will probably come out uh, around seven pounds for both tanks combined.
0: That's the goal. So I would assume the difficulty um, is just getting them to be leak-free. Yeah. So I would envision putting the tape on and then injecting some, some liquid resin and putting it on a big rotisserie to make sure that all the little crevices get sealed up.
3: Right. Uh, you know, with the resin I'm using, I'm, I don't remember the model – uh, number of the stuff but it's what the glass air guys have used for years and what some of the long easy guys use for their fuel tanks uh it's not ethanol proof but uh, it's fine for 100 low lead it's got a, a you know years of uh, reliable service record with low lead uh wasn't planning on doing like a slosh uh you know of the tank when i'm done but that is the last resort, right? If it's if it's leaky, there's a product by Jeffco and some others that I could pour in there and, and kind of set the the tubular tank up on like a rotisserie and let it roll around in there to uh,
0: to seal it. But
3: hopefully, I won't have to do that.
0: Well, it's cool. I think it's a, it's a neat approach going after some of these unique modifications. Um, just kind of like establish a trail that others can follow so who knows maybe other people will do the same thing
3: all right maybe maybe it'll be my third uh, podcast appearance who knows
0: right (laughs) (laughs) or it'll be uh, how to make an an industrial chemical applicator for your sonics right because the
2: thing leaks like a sieve (laughs)
3: yeah how not to build fuel tanks yeah
2: it's a it's a flying uh, degreaser (laughs) that's right (laughs)
0: All right, so uh, Jonathan, what what's next? Um, you're gonna you're gonna wrap up these skins. You're gonna get your wings done, and, and then what's next?
3: Uh, I guess uh, match drilling the uh, spars to the fuselage uh, would be the thing. You know, roll the fuselage out in the driveway and level it up, and plug in the completed wings, and and do that uh, critical alignment and drilling step for which you're welcome to fly up from mississippi and assist (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) i got room and board and steak and yeah
0: (laughs) it'll be like uh you know like a summer solstice festival you know right make a sacrifice to the airplane gods and maybe they'll shine their grace upon you
3: i figure you've done it twice uh you'd be the guy to have around (laughs) so maybe that'll work out
0: yeah Well, then after that, it's just, um, you know, instrument panel and canopy, and that's about it, huh?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think it's going to take the rest of this year to wrap up the fuel tank thing and finish up the wings. Definitely take, you know, a few months of the spring to just wrap up little things. Like I haven't done a fuel door uh, and an oil uh, dipstick door and a few things like that on the cowling. Uh, I've got a knack event to add to the cowl, so there's a lot of little things like that. Um, electrical, I'm gonna do after I paint it. I don't know. M- maybe I'm optimistic to think I'll fly in the fall, but that's that's the goal. I think I'm. If I stay at it, I'm about a year out, barring uh, you know, serious interruptions, job loss, uh, you know, health crisis, that sort of thing.
0: Well, you dodged the uh, the eclipse, you know, that that giant meteor. Yeah. Uh, it cast a shadow on you, but it missed you, so you're okay there.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, um I guess uh let me see. I'm just trying to think of some of the other things. We we talked about this uh, last time around. Your uh your custom glare shield and panel. Uh that turned out really great. Um um I'm anxious to kind of see um, how you fit all your instruments in there. I think that's going to look real sharp. And then you were working on your smoke system too. So I think that's pretty well done, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. Uh, what I ended up doing on that is I bought one of these uh, three gallon polypropylene, uh, you know, uh, drag tanks, I guess you would call it, from uh, uh, Summit Racing. I think the tank weighs about three pounds, three and a half pounds. It's, you know, it's a real thick, heavy duty crash resistant polypropylene tank with an aircraft style, uh, uh, lid on it. So it's very easy to, uh, um, to fill. And, uh, for the pump, I kinda, I went on a smoke system helper.com. You know, he's a guy that provides, uh, turnkey smoke systems for a lot of the RV guys and kind of looked at the system he had put together and determined from that what kind of pump uh, he is selling. And you can go on Amazon and buy a uh, 12-volt, 30-psi, self-priming diaphragm pump. I forget what the GPMs are. It's, it's It's a pretty high GPM. 30 psi internally internally regulated pump for uh, from SureFlow for about $110, and I think Smoke System Helpers.com sells them for like you know 300. So he's getting them and marking them up, but uh, it's clearly a, a SureFlow diaphragm uh, pump with Viton seals in it that's used for uh, usually like light oil transfer for like uh, transmission fluids and oils and things on boats and RVs and that sort of application. And that pump's kind of heavy. I think it weighs uh, a little bit more than four pounds. So you put it all together, it's like seven and a half, eight pounds. But I've made it where the pump is attached to the, uh, the smoke tank. And everything is attached uh, in the baggage compartment with uh, hinges. And all I got to do is pull the hinge pin and I'll pop uh, loose some quick disconnects on the uh, on the uh, smoke lines. And I'll be able to take the system out. So maybe it's a little bit heavier of a system when it's installed, but I'm able to, uh, to remove it if I'm taking a trip to Oshkosh or something like that. So... The way I see it, the approach kind of gives me the best of both worlds. You know, it's uh, three gallons is a lot of smoke fluid, so I won't have to fill it that often. And uh, the pump is just a—it is a beast of a pump. Uh, the motor on the pump is three inches in diameter, five inches long. Like this, this is a serious pump. So it ought to really do the job.
0: Yeah, I think that's the problem I'm having on my smoke system. I just don't think I'm putting enough smoke oil into the exhaust so
3: yeah it, it's either that or you're not getting enough heat you know and we'll find out when i pour the fluid to to mine if the exhaust uh is really long enough to do a proper job of uh you know burning the smoke I, i'm worried about that a little bit that it all might be overkill
0: yeah
3: but uh, I, i'd rather be on the uh the side of pumping too much fluid than not enough
0: so well, it's either that or I hang uh, six feet of muffler pipe underneath the belly and and right. really let it get hot. Right. <laughs> well, cool. All right. Well, uh, since we're talking about uh, mods, uh, John, what what are you doing? What what is your next mod you're working on?
2: Well, I'm I'm following down the path of refining the alternate uh, or the auxiliary fuel system, which I hope to have ready for uh, rec Um, you know, in our auxiliary fuel uh podcast i was using a uh, a marine uh dinghy tank that's it's a buddy tank that just sits in the seat next to me and uh mike niedenthal put one in uh based upon our podcast that sits behind the seat and i kind of like that and i think if i get it if i do a custom one i can get one that just basically mirrors my the back of my uh the seat pan And keeps the weight as far forward as I can. And while I'm just bending some aluminum, I'm going to rivet it up and see if I can seal it with some of that slosh seal. And if that works, that's going to be my new uh, auxiliary tank right behind my seat. It's going to be about eight gallons.
0: Yeah, good.
2: And if it doesn't, I got my other buddy tank.
0: Right. Or, uh, you know, you, uh, you put them both in, and then you will be the fastest YX because... Not only will you be able to skip one fuel stop, you'll be able to skip two fuel stops. No one can beat you then.
2: And running at full throttle with in uh, burning eight and a half gallons, so yeah, can't keep up with me.
0: If you if you put that smoke pump in there, you can inject fuel directly into your exhaust, and you get a little afterburner.
2: You know, I, I like the way you think. <laughs> with my X, you know, I can put the uh, the subsonic jet engine on the back too. You know, I'm already right. I'm rigged for it, so I just need yeah. to, you know, spend that kind of money and just plumb that right.
0: You wouldn't have to get a, a jet rating either, because it'd be an auxiliary system. So,
2: yeah, it's just be a boost, you know, from uh, takeoff to get all that weight of all that fuel I'm carrying for all the fuel and all the systems I've got. Right, right.
0: Or you just put uh, your eight gallon jet A tank, and that's what feeds your jet engine.
2: Hey, uh, by the way, uh, Mike and I. Flew our Sonics is up to go uh, check out Gary's build uh, last weekend. And they were having a military uh, kind of a air show fly in get together with a lot of the T-6s and all the warbirds in the area. And on the flight line was a well, it was a unpainted subsonics. And I think it's the one, the first customer one that flew in Durango, which I've heard has repositioned in Denver. Yeah, that one was sold, and yeah. Oh, good. Uh, did you did you find the owner? No, we uh, we were taxing past it because we spent all of our uh, free time talking to Gary and trying to keep him, uh, you know, safe with his new build. So we we didn't have any time to talk to others. I did see the subsonics fly the other day, though. Oh, you did? Okay,
1: great. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was flying around.
2: It was uh, when we passed it. It was just on the line and all plugged up. So glad to see it flying.
0: Well, that's really cool. One of these days, we're going to have to form the uh, the the Colorado Springs uh, Subsonics Flying Club, and we'll all pitch in and get one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm game.
2: Can I have my colonel title? <laughs> well, you're going to have to wear the
0: special gloves and jumpsuit whenever you fly it.
2: All right, I can do that. And
0: we're probably going to have to get you a giant uh, fake push-on um, handlebar mustache also.
2: <laughs> that's definitely true
0: yeah maybe maybe one of those uh, Benny Hill style campaign hats so it'll be it'll be all very very formalized <laughs> all right guys um, Jonathan good job running through that topic um, i I think that should demystify the process especially when used in conjunction with the YouTube videos and hopefully encourage someone to to get out there and give it a shot I think probably doing it only to save cost and and time that might not be um Enough, you know, $250, $300 might not be enough motivation, but uh, seeing as how it sounds pretty easy, I think it'd be pretty interesting and satisfying. And for those hardcore builders that just absolutely have to do it all themselves, like, you know, our buddy Bob Micah, uh, who has to do everything the hard way, <laughs> that sounds like a good way to go. Yeah. All right, well, you can catch this episode on the website. The show notes are going to be available at sonicsflight.com slash six. Can subscribe to the show through iTunes, Google Play, or or your favorite podcast app. Uh, send us an email. You can get to the link off the website, or you can send directly to feedback at Sonicsflight.com. And if you have a suggestion or topic, send it along. We'll uh, we'll get it into the rotation. Or if it's just something quick, we'll just try to throw it in at the beginning and and knock it out that way. And then uh Everybody out there has something interesting or unique to talk about and to contribute. So if you think you have something and would like to be a, a guest on the show, send an email and tell us what you have in mind. Jump in and, and contribute. Yeah, share those experiences back with the community. That's what we all do when we sit around uh, the campfire at Rekla. anyway. Might as well just get them on a Sonic Slight podcast. We'll probably knock one out at Rekla. What, what do you think, John? Uh, I have to come up with a good topic for that.
2: Yeah, and we're going to have to talk real loud because of all the flybys.
0: It's a sacrifice I'm willing to make.
2: All right.
0: <laughs> and uh, Carl is going to have to load the rumble bus up with uh, some choice
2: beverages. And Gary, because we can't do it without Gary. That's true. Well,
0: I'm a Gary, up. you might have to, you might have to be sitting on like a mountain of, of cases. I don't know how much cargo room is in there, but we got to load did, that. Guy I did get
1: pretty thirsty on those long flights.
0: <laughs> Before we close this out, I want to give a quick shout out. You guys know uh, my son, Isaac. Uh, he's working on his Sonics project. Um, he's making good progress. He's got the wings nearly done. He'll probably be on to the fuselage soon. It's been fun to kind of watch him learn how to build airplanes and and then learn about balancing his time and trying to work through school demands and gymnastics and Boy Scouts and, and working to, to pay for the project. So he, he's really getting after it, learning a whole lot. He's doing a great job. So I'm, I'm real proud of him. If anybody's interested in his progress, he does have a website. He's been doing weekly blog updates, and you can find that at isaacsholtsonics.blogspot.com. So go go check it out and, and see what Isaac's up to. I think uh, I think you'll like his his style of writing. All right, guys, good talking to you as always, and uh, we'll see you down the road.
3: Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, guys, we'll talk to you a little bit later on. All right. We'll be watching for that first flight video. Yeah, by the time that we meet again, uh, the first flight is going to have come and gone, and there will just be the luster of it fading into the background.
1: Well, and it'll be perpetually on YouTube, I'm hoping.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I recommend you put the entire unedited first flight on there. Um, You know, that works for me.
1: Yeah, I know it does. Yeah, (laughs) I I might go the Jeff Schultz route.